I'm here to make some money so I can get drunk. He's like a sack of potatoes. It's what we keep our fly swatter on. You need to just back off, lady. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that is precisely as classy as its title implies. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are married. But only in the British version. It's uh, been an exciting week here at Up Yours Downstairs Central. We have listeners from 13 new countries. That's right. And I will list them for you now because I love geography. It is true. He (laughs) won some prize in some geography contest, which I feel like I should know. It's an atlas. It's up there. What do I need with an atlas? (laughs) It's it's what we keep our fly swatter on. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) The new countries that we have are Korea, Ecuador, the Netherlands, Reunion, which is a French island, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Qatar, Ukraine, Spain, Asia slash Pacific region, okay. Romania, the Isle of Man, Belgium, Jersey, and our personal favorite, Satellite Provider. Yes, the great nation of Satellite (laughs) Provider. Right. We hope that means that somebody is listening to us in space. That would be cool. That would be cool. (laughs) Yes, and again, anybody who is listening to us from outside the U.S., if you want to drop us a line and let us know how you heard about us, again, I love geography. It would make my day. It really would. He does nothing but sit around all day rocking back and forth saying, (laughs) I wonder, I wonder what countries, where are they from? How did they hear about us? Oh, I wonder. Which is great because I have a lot of time to get my reading in. (laughs) Anyway, uh, at long last, we have a winner for our trivia contest. Hooray! Congratulations to Cousin Anne, a.k.a. Chickspear, from Charleston, North Carolina, for correctly identifying the actors in the Masterpiece classic credit sequence. And uh, for those of you playing along at home, they are Gillian Anderson as Lady Deadlock in Bleak House, Damian Lewis as Soames Foresight in Foresight Saga, Eamon Walker as John Othello in Othello, Kira Knightley as Lara Antipova in Dr. Zhivago, Colin Firth as The Master in Turn of the Screw, and Helen Mirren as Jane Tennyson in Prime Suspect 6. Well done, Anne. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy your tenure as Cousin of the Week, and we hope you all enjoyed finding out who all those faces are that flash by so quickly. I do want to point out, number one, that I love Eamon Walker from his days as Minister Said on Oz. Oh, yes. But number two, uh, Othello... Probably one of the only times outside of a Ken Burns documentary uh, that a black person is allowed on PBS. This is true. So uh, write letters, everyone. (laughs) I really – I do want to see a black person on season three of Downton Abbey because Uh, I read about them on Edwardian Promenade from time to time. I don't know how prevalent they were in British society. Yeah. Well, sadly, Julian Fellows does not read about them from time to time. <laughs> and thus, you'll be seeing none of them. You don't know his life. I I have some guesses. I bet his life is like Dangerous Minds. <laughs> the, uh, uh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've also got some great telegrams from the cousins this week. Uh, Dowager Cousin Jackie has been composing a series of haikus about the characters on Downton Abbey, which Kelly will now read aloud. Can I get a bongo? Uh, no. How about some snaps? All right, at least two. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for humoring me. I, I, I okay. do. Okay. 
Uh, Jackie writes, this is a haiku for everyone's favorite sister to hate, Edith. Reads the sister's mail, not for her, forever alone. Yeah, man. Yeah, dig it. That's a very good one. Yeah. I really like that one. Yeah. I probably should have saved it for last. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> here are two other perfectly good ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, inspired by Anna and Bates. Snaps. Anna adores you, Mr. Bates. Enough with the weights. Yeah. All right, Daddy-O. You ready for the next one? Sure. Old Bates hesitates. Anna waits. I die of boredom. Dig it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, very true. We're in episode six, <laughs> and they have yet to swap spit. So <laughs> yeah, you know, real actually, they they now give uh, Mary and Matthew a run for their money. Yeah, it's really true. They were moving so slowly, we didn't even realize how slowly they were moving. Yeah, no, and Anna's not even really waiting anymore. Just Bates out hesitates. Mm-hmm. It's pretty frustrating. Probably pretty common in in British relationships. I, you're probably right. Um, we also received great news from cousin Mr. Voldemorton. He did complete Dubstep Abbey. Hooray! Uh, so you can find that by following the links on our Twitter or Facebook pages. And you can also follow him on Twitter. He's at MR underscore Voldemorton. That's Voldemort O-N. It's pretty spectacular. And uh, we're having a hard time deciding which snippet to use for our uh, Series 2 theme song. Yeah. So, uh, again, stay tuned and you will find out what we decide. That's right. And uh, chime in with your opinions. We spent a little time in last week's episode complaining about the sloppy edits on the PBS version. Mm -hmm. And Cousin Leo, who was actually the runner-up in the trivia contest, uh, writes, I read somewhere that Downton is cut to allow the addition of the masterpiece classic Laura Linney intro. This may explain some of the sloppy edits. I imagine that similar editing to allow the intro has occurred since the time of Alistair Cook, but televised programming is so fast-paced now that there is little extraneous content to allow much editing. Anyway, thanks, and I know you are looking forward to the season two finale Sunday night. I hope by season three you will be caught up to real-time recapping. Uh, And we were discussing that, actually, and we had more or less decided to recap in real time for season three until this episode. We love this episode. Episode six, I think we'll have to see when we rewatch series two. Right. But this might be the perfect episode of Downton Abbey for us. Huge fans. And uh, so the first time we watched it on Netflix, Mm -hmm. and then the second time we watched the PBS Masterpiece Classic edit. Only to discover that the entire subplot about William's sick mother and Carson's very deep emotional reaction to the rumors about Lady Mary's reputation, in addition to the information that Mrs. Patmore has cataracts, all cut. All cut. Over ten minutes of material were cut out of this episode. And 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 look, PBS, we get that you want Laura Linney to introduce every episode because you think the audience is stupid. We get that your programming schedule requires shows to be a certain length. Right, but we don't get why you're determined to just undermine the integrity of this show that is, by the way, a global phenomenon by cutting out vital pieces of, of character development. And without, they, they cut out scenes that lead to other scenes that make no mm-hmm. sense in context and come out of nowhere. Yeah, it's like, can you not shorten the pledge breaks by 10 minutes? Right. Or if you don't like that, add 20 minutes more of pledge breaks. Yeah. I mean, I have DVR. I don't really care that much. 
And I just want to see all the Downton Abbey that there is to show. Right. Like you couldn't run for another week and... No, I mean, I mean, I, I defy you to tell me that anything else you could run in this time slot is going to garner the same ratings. <laughs> right. Well, I, you know, and, and, and Cousin Leo is correct. They have been editing like this for years. Right. Because I remember, you know, they would show Anne of Green Gables and Anne of Green Gables, the sequel, <laughs> yeah. all the time when I was a kid. And, mm-hmm. you know, and um, a friend of mine also had it on VHS. So, you know, you could tell oh, okay. where the, the cuts were. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's a different age now. Yeah. I mean, did you hear me? I said VHS. <laughs> I, I read this interview on Vulture with Hugh Bonneville, and he was infuriated with the interviewer for having watched series two illicitly. Uh-huh. And I'm willing to sympathize with performers who lose a cut of revenue, et cetera. Right. But when our option is to kind of watch this randomly spliced up version, yeah. I mean, I mean how it's... do you expect – I mean, if they're playing some long con where it's like, oh, we're <laughs> going to hook them with this crappy edit and then they'll buy the DVD later. No. I mean, fine. Well, I mean, I did. I bought the DVD. Uh-huh. But I mean – there's people who can't afford to buy the DVD anyway, and they deserve to see the same show. Well, and the people who made this show and who the actors mm-hmm. who performed in those scenes and did a great job in those scenes mm-hmm. deserve them ha- to have them seen and Absolutely. not cut out for no reason. Anyway, so obviously your, uh, your letter, Cousin Leo, struck more of a chord <laughs> than you ever could have possibly anticipated. Yeah. So basically, here's what we've decided. We will be recapping Series 3 in real time. Mm-hmm. But if we can get a hold of the British edit, we will. And that will determine the length of our uh, our podcast episodes. Right. And generally speaking, that runtime on the British edit is a little bit better for our purposes recapping. Because otherwise, we'll be here until, you know, Tuesday yeah. recapping. Yeah. So, yeah. So that is what's going on. I apologize for the rather choppy edit of your letter, Cousin Leo, but we'll be addressing the other points that you made in a later episode. Yeah. Uh, if you yourself would like to send us a telegram from you, one of our cousins, uh, please contact us at upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. You can also get in touch via Twitter. We're at five, the number five, Maggie Smiths. And just search Up Yours Downstairs to find us on Tumblr or Facebook. That's right. And just a quick note to those of us who may be listening to this episode and not having heard any of others and are wondering, am I one of the cousins? Yes. If you can hear this, you are one of our cousins. (laughs) Congratulations. And so finally, we would uh, like to wrap up this portion of the show with an appeal to you, our cousins. No, we don't need you to drive us to Ripon for the by-election results. (laughs) Uh, But if you could carve out a little time in your schedule to give us a rating or a review on iTunes, we would really appreciate it. Our review page has been infiltrated by several evil footmen who are scheming to bring down our five-star rating with one-star reviews. So if you like what we do every week, uh, please let the other iTunes users know. Yeah, we broke our one-day download record again on Monday with 881 unique downloads. So, you know, we're guessing... Statistically speaking, there are more of you out there who like the podcast than hate it. And, you know, we just want our reviews to reflect that. That's right. Don't let the evil footmen win. Speaking of evil footmen winning, should we get this party started? Yes. All right. So we start off at a some sort of rowdy meeting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some dudes up there yelling about Emily Davison. He clearly listens to Tom repeats history. (laughs) (laughs) And Sybil is in the crowd watching raptly. Yeah, she's, like, drunk on politics. (laughs) I mean, she just... I mean, she looks like she's just in this haze. You know, if you've ever seen, like, an icon card of a Catholic saint, 
that's what she looks like at this rally. But yes, the guys are suggesting that women uh, should have the vote and should be able to speak in public and all that sort of thing. And there's uh, a lot of commentary from the peanut gallery. <laughs> yes. A, uh, a guy suggests that if they give women the vote, why not allow dogs to vote? Uh, yeah, and, and actually, that may seem like that guy was just some kind of misogynist. Actually, he was a crazy guy. He thinks that dogs can talk. <laughs> Only the Freemasons can understand them. It's a whole elaborate... Oh, I thought he was just like the people who don't want gay marriage legalized. Cause <laughs> uh, dog marriage. Potato, potato. <laughs> and there's another woman there who looks like O'Brien's, like, sister? Yeah. She looks so much yeah, like O'Brien. She does. But she's screaming at the, the candidate who's speaking, you know, if you want women to have the vote so much, why don't you let one speak? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's getting a little out of hand. Yeah. People are jostling. Lots of jostling. There's some aggressive jostling <laughs> going on. And uh, Branson runs up to Sybil to see if she's all right. Mm-hmm. Mom is there, apparently. Sure. Uh, and she runs over and encourages Sybil to leave so that Branson won't get fired because Sybil's resisting and she wants to stay. Yeah. But if anything happens to her, obviously Branson's going to be fired because Sybil has no agency. Yes. Uh, if she did, she'd probably have the vote. Yes. Lord Grantham will simply blame the nearest man. Yes. And uh, Sybil asks Branson why the prime minister is being such an idiot about giving women the vote. Uh, he replies that politicians have a very hard time seeing what is inevitable. Yeah. Presumably because they cannot see past the nearest re-election. Makes sense. So they do, uh, they get back into the car and are driving back to the Abbey. Uh, Sybil encourages Branson to go into politics. She knows he's political and she thinks that's just great. It's a fine ambition. Yes, a fine ambition. Sybil is too well-bred to not be patronizing (laughs) when her heart's in the right place. Yeah, even when she doesn't mean to be. (laughs) Yeah. And Branson starts talking about the fact that uh, it's not just about women's rights for him, it's about socialism. Although he doesn't want to criticize Lord Grantham directly because Branson, like us, has realized that he's not as evil as he could be. Mm -hmm. And Uh, Sybil asks him to take her around back to the servant's entrance so that Papa won't see her in this state. Right. Uh, Which she looks fine to me, but whatever. (laughs) You're not well-bred enough to know the difference, Tom. You're right, I'm not. Uh, so that brings us downstairs. We hear the uh, the distant sounds of the wild Patmore. <laughs> um, and Mrs. Hughes and Carson uh, talk about how mean Mrs. Patmore is. Uh, to Daisy, specifically. To Daisy. Yeah. They realize, or they discuss that Mrs. Patmore has, has been to a doctor that's been diagnosed with cataracts. Mm-hmm. There are treatments, apparently, but they are not uh, necessarily... They're not a sure thing. And I mean, even then, you know, there is the question probably of whether the family will allow her to or finance it. Because you have to think that it has to be really costly. Yeah, yeah. To get your cataracts out. Yeah. So then uh, after this conversation, Carson opens a letter that he's received. And he is quite visibly shaken. Yeah. Very, very upset. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sybil comes in, having been brought round back uh, through the servants' quarter. She runs into Williams and uh, tells him to tell Anna that she is back. William goes to do so and runs into Thomas spilling his tea. <gasps> the cad! Yeah, though to be fair, Thomas was standing with his elbow in the doorway, and it's kind of his fault. And Miss O'Brien bitches about Sybil being interested in politics. And Thomas expresses uh, that he doesn't care much about women's rights. Yes, surprise, surprise. And uh, Mr. Bates 
suddenly and awkwardly pounces and says, oh, I'm not surprised, seeing as you obviously don't respect rights of property. Right. Alluding to the scene in the previous episode where Mr. Bates caught Thomas red wine handed in Carson's <laughs> wine cellar. Yes. Which, again, everybody involved already knew. So why is Bates bringing this up now? And then Thomas says, who's going to tell him? You? And obviously he isn't. Bates has destroyed any credibility he has as some kind of extortionist. He's the worst, man. <laughs> yeah. Bates continues to be the worst. <laughs> and then Mrs. Hughes comes into Carson's office and asks, what's wrong? And he says, you know, nothing's wrong. And she says, oh, well, you forgot to ring the dressing gong. You know, the dressing gong, people. <laughs> this is, you know, the only clock in the house that matters. <laughs> right. Because it doesn't matter what time it is. If the dressing gong hasn't been rung, people ain't getting dressed. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he shuffles off to, to go remedy that situation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and it's, it's important that he didn't because Mrs. Patmore had made a souffle. And mm-hmm. as you may be aware, souffles are very time sensitive. So it's, it's just important to get the upstairs people to the table when the food is ready mm-hmm. or it's just a disaster. Mm-hmm. Sad souffle. <laughs> yeah. So Lord Grantham is hurriedly getting dressed with the assistance of Bates. They hear that he hears that there was some sort of ruckus at the liberal rally, because uh, there ain't no rally like a liberal rally. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bates, uh, while discussing it, manages to accidentally let slip that Branson was there with somebody, and Lord Grantham gets out of him that it was Sybil. Mm-hmm. Dad's mad. Yeah, dad is <laughs> Look mad. out, batting the hatches. <laughs> we, uh, we cut down to dinner, where presumably the souffle has gone off without a hitch. <laughs> And Lord Grantham asks Sybil about said brouhaha at the political rally. And uh, she, you know, politely responds, not asking how he found out she went. Right. But uh, then he immediately flips out that she went. Yeah. I mean, just completely loses his cool in a way we've never seen him lose his cool. Yeah. And uh, it turns out McGee gave Sybil permission to go canvassing in Ripon, mm-hmm. and the Dowager Countess is quite <laughs> upset. Yeah. Uh, Sybil explains that canvassing is, you know, going door to door, knocking, and but you're in groups, so it's very safe. Yeah. And the Dowager Countess is like, I know what it is. <laughs> and uh, Mary is very pro Sybil's interest in politics, which causes the Dowager Countess to ask her, oh, will you be going canvassing? Or would you rather take in washing? <laughs> Which is awesome. It's nice to see the Dowager Countess back on our game, making snotty remarks like she always do. Yes. Lord Grantham is, as we expected, blaming Branson. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, at first I was amused at the idea of a radical Irish chauffeur. And which, it's... Really? Because <laughs> he, he looked upset when he wanted to read about history and politics. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean... It's not amusing to have a radical for a chauffeur. It's not amusing at all. He wants to kill you in some fashion. <laughs> right. He wants to take you down. Yeah. And, you know, you can indulge him all you want. Just hide the knives. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, so then uh, back downstairs, Carson is griping about how everything, or not downstairs, but in the hall, mm-hmm. uh, Carson's just complaining about how everything's going wrong. His sauce has been forgotten. A hollandaise. A hollandaise, yes. At dinner. They're the most important sauce, as you know. Um, And uh, Daisy immediately volunteers to run down and fetch it. Thomas says, would you do that for me? And she says, I'd do anything for you. And they start singing, I'd do anything for you, dear. 
They don't actually sing that. No, they don't. I wish exactly. they did, but PBS probably would have cut it out. <laughs> this is true. And Daisy just, I mean, she really would. She's Oh, just- yeah. No questions asked. <laughs> the Dowager Countess, back up at dinner, wants to know if Sybil still intends to be presented to their majesties the following month, even though she may be arrested at a political riot. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Sybil says, of course she does. Sybil doesn't see anything wrong with having an interest in politics and being introduced, you know, at her... Uh, Coming is, out or yeah, her, I don't her know if season. It would, yeah, her season. They don't have debutante balls, I don't think. Yeah. But, you know, she doesn't see any conflict between being presented to two political figureheads and mm. having an interest in politics. And there's all this chatter about next time Sybil might not be so lucky, I believe... Edith brings it up, which, fuck you, Edith. <laughs> and uh, Lord Grantham says there won't be a next time for Sybil to go to Ripon for uh, at a political purposes. So right. apparently and the book is closed on that. Yes, and since he is the lord of the manor, that is the end we'll hear of Ripon, mm-hmm. I think. Anna tells everybody about uh, her ladyship not appreciating being told off in public like that. That would be McGee. Right. Because there's yes. two her ladyships. Right. So it can get very confusing. The, uh, yes. But uh, McGee didn't appreciate it because Lord Grantham dressed her down in front of his mother, in front of the servants, in front of their daughters, in front of everybody. Yeah. And, you know, in this facetious power structure (laughs) where McGee is supposed to be second in command, that's not a good position to be in. Yeah. Thomas tells Branson, who is down there, by the way, (laughs) that the Dowager Countess is ready to leave, so he goes off to bring the car around. And it's just nasty debates about having, you know, caused all this, mm-hmm. which, uh, fair play, he yeah. did in fact cause all this trouble. So, and, and then walks off Bates and Anna, uh, Anna's commiserating with Bates about Thomas being such a horrible person. Mm-hmm. And Bates says that he is, he, Thomas is just afraid that he, Bates, will tell on him about the case of the missing wine. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't want Thomas to lose his job. Right. Because he's a moron. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I strongly feel that Anna should just tell Carson herself. And, yeah. And, and I mean, come on, this like, whole... this isn't a typical job. This is, you have to live with this person 24 hours a day. There yeah. is no escape. Yeah. So what like, profit is it for you? trying to get you fired. Yeah. It's a zero-sum game. Like, I don't think Mrs. Patmore is the blindest person below stairs. <laughs> well said. Carson uh, comes up to find McGee after dinner to inform her that he has received a letter from a friend that says Lady Mary uh, boint Mr. Pamu. <laughs> yes. He, of course, uses much less coarse <laughs> language, but let's be real here. Right. And Carson's pretty upset. Yeah. And uh, his friend is a valet to uh, Lord Flintshire. Yes. And, you know, so it's it's gotten from his employer down to the valet. Yeah. Which is fairly serious. And uh, McGee wants to know if he told Lord Grantham yet, which he says he did not. She very cleverly says, oh, don't you tell him about X. I'll tell him. Yeah. And uh, Carson has done his duty and, you know, goes yeah. off and McGee looks very concerned. Right. And, man, I'll have to say, you know, we, we give McGee a lot of grief about her silly accent and all that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But if I was in the middle of some sort of nefarious plot, I would want her on my uh-huh. side. She's totally reliable. She's part of the dream team. Yeah, she doesn't. She never gives anything away. That's what I don't get. Why is O'Brien so bad at scheming? <laughs> like she's got the master right there. Yeah, she yeah. could be. You know, she could be having spy school 
Like, every day. Well, that's that's how much of a master McGee is. O'Brien doesn't even yeah. know what a master she is. That's true. Yeah. I mean, that's why she keeps O'Brien around, just to, like, feel superior. <laughs> yeah. Uh, O'Brien and Thomas, speak of the devil, uh, are scheming in the hallway, as per usual. Mm-hmm. And they decide to blame the missing wine on Bates in order to get Bates before Bates gets Thomas. Which, again, new plan, same as the old plan. Oh, right. When are you going to get a new plan? Cheapers. <laughs> yeah. Or when are you going to write a new storyline, Julian Fellows? Mm. Come on. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Come on. Like, I feel like there's just got to be more stuff that they could try and nail him for. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he can't be that great at his job <laughs> after all the crap we saw him drop in the first episode. Like, really? He's yeah. that great now? Like, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm still crippled, but miraculously nothing ever goes wrong. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I just feel like there's got to be a better... A better solution. Or maybe it's just that hard to fire somebody from a manor house. I guess so. Looks that way. I mean, again, the the drawback to having this job where 24 hours a day, they're all in the same place. It's hard to even suggest that somebody's doing something untoward. Yeah. Because Carson is everywhere. (laughs) Yes. Thomas does, in fact, put this plan into motion with some sort of story about how he thinks he saw the cellar key swaying when Mr. Bates was near it. And that's Which is not very convincing. You can see in Carson's face he is nonplussed. Yeah. He's like, Oh really? <laughs> okay. Yeah. The key was swaying. <laughs> yeah. Because Carson's nobody's fool. It is true. Up in the uh bedchamber, Lord Grantham tells McGee he is sorry about the row at dinner. Yes. Which good. Yeah. Because rude much. <laughs> He is all worried about Sybil being a a political person. And McGee puts her foot down and says, listen to me. You don't need to worry about Sybil. Sybil's not your problem. Mary is the problem. Mary needs to get married like yesterday. Mm -hmm. And uh, they talk about uh, how they, they don't much talk about Edith, do they? Yes. Lord Grantham speaks for us all when he says... Poor old Edith. Yes. And uh, McGee says she thinks Edith will be the one to care for them in their old age. And Lord Grantham just looks shocked <laughs> and goes, what a ghastly prospect. <laughs> Which, look, people people who are upset with our Edith hate. Yeah. Come on. That's her we are clearly We are clearly <laughs> supposed to dislike her. Even her own father can't see her redeeming qualities. Yeah. But fortunately for... Poor old Edith. There is one person who can see her redeeming qualities. Good old Sir Anthony Overbite comes to call. And uh, he's just back from Austria and Germany. And he hints darkly at some issues there. Yeah. I wonder what that could be about. I haven't the slightest. Anyway, I'm sure we'll find out if it's important. I think what we've all learned from history is that nothing bad ever starts in Germany. Yeah, that's true. Uh, He invites Mary on a drive. I don't even know why he leads off with asking Mary. Like, I guess... Because she's a fox. Okay, that's <laughs> true. But still, like, she's just dissed him so many times. Yeah. No, I mean, it's true. I mean, I think... But he does seem kind of clueless, so... Well, and also, I mean, I think, you know, if McGee was trying to set them up, I'm pretty sure that she, you know, without... Not even hinted, but just, like, by sitting them together, was basically sending a message that, like, hey, listen, you've got a shot with her. Yeah. an erroneous message (laughs) yes anyway mary turns him down to go on a drive in his new rolls royce because uh her horse is all saddled Mm -hmm. good old diamonds all saddled and and she'd rather spend the day with a horse than with 
Sir Anthony Strallen. Edith pipes up once Mary has stalked out rudely yeah. and asks if she might go. And he says, uh, yes, of course, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I didn't see you there. <laughs> Downstairs, uh, Carson informs Bates that he has been accused of handling the cellar key. Not even doing anything, just handling it. Right. And Bates, genius that he is, manages to say something about because some wine is missing. And Carson wants to know how he knew that. And, I mean, like, he doesn't even have a scheme. I would rather (laughs) see the inept scheming of O'Brien and Thomas than the just... I mean, what is he doing? Like, is he a narcoleptic? Is he just waking up places with no concept of what is going on or why? I mean anything like how do you not know how to lie to protect yourself dude he must have lost that ability with his war injury <laughs> we cut to sir anthony and edith driving yes it's a, it's a convertible Dri- or a, what did he call it like an to- open top an I open think? top rolls royce yes and they're driving through the scenic green screen of yorkshire mm-hmm. and uh he's discussing old rascally kaiser wilhelm kaiser bill as his friends oh, call him. that's true. Mm-hmm. And how uh, his wife used to say about Kaiser Bill that uh, Kaiser Bill loved medals, but he never understood that they were somehow connected with fighting. At which point the subtitles on the Netflix version say, both laugh lightly, which <laughs> is exactly correct. Yes. That's what happens. No, but uh, Sir Anthony seems very pleased that Edith doesn't shut him down when he tries to talk about his dead wife. Yeah, they seem to be having a good time. And, uh, yeah. oh, he, you know, and I give this guy such a hard time, but the look on his face when he's sort of, like, talking about his wife, uh, he talks about how she was so funny. Yeah. Uh, but nobody else knew it, but he, that he knew it. Yeah. And I, he's just got this look in his face, and he just misses her so badly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and Edith, actually, to her credit, I think she sees that, and she... Yeah. You know, she wants to help, and she doesn't want to shame him for still being attached. Yeah, I mean, this scene is two people that, like, they seem like they should really be, you know, together. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they seem to be well-suited and... Yeah, they're a good match. Yeah, I'm, and I'm glad to see them driving through Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. Then we see Mary, whose day is not gone as well. No. Uh, her, her horse has gone lame. Poor old Diamond. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least he hasn't been turned into glue. So. <laughs> that was Dragon. Oh, you're right. That they were going right. to do that, too. Uh, they w- probably shot Dragon <laughs> for making Sybil so late. <laughs> Lord Grantham couldn't find a man to blame, so we just shot the horse. <laughs> uh, and William, who is nearby, offers to take a look at the horse. Uh, he used to work on a farm. He's a farmer's son. Yes. His dad's a farmer. And uh, Mary basically uh, insults him <laughs> right. by being like, why did you leave, you crazy ass, if you liked it so much? Because he's talking about he really enjoyed working with the animals and he mm-hmm. had a real skill for it. Yeah. And uh, he tells her that actually it was his mom who wanted him to go into service and uh, make a better life for himself. She wants him to one day be a uh, butler. And so Mary says that Mr. Carson better look out. Yeah. So it's it's just... No, it's a really nice little scene. And Mary, because, you know, we've seen, like, we saw Matthew earlier make the same sort of mistake of sort of dissing the servant's life, mm-hmm. which she does a little bit here, but it's not as blatant, and she's much more... Well, and hers is born of ignorance versus right. arrogance. Right, exactly. It, well, it's the same thing you said about Sybil 
being too well-bred to not be patronizing. Right. So she's just trying to think of something polite to say. Yeah. But, you know, and she she understands that she's kind of insulted him a little bit and, and backtracks. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I believe you said your favorite scene. Yeah, and I can't even explain why. I just love that little interaction. It's two people that you've never particularly seen together. Well, why would they? Yeah. You know, he's, yeah. he's a footman. He doesn't deal with the lady side of things very much. Right. So I just, yeah, liked it a lot. Liked it a lot. Masterpiece classic begs to differ. <laughs> yeah, they did not. Uh, we cut to O'Brien, Daisy, and Thomas in Carson's office, ratting out Bates. Right. Because uh, Thomas has cashed in his doing-anything-for-him offer from Daisy. Yeah, genius. Way to go, Thomas and O'Brien, because with Daisy helping, your plan can't possibly No, and he's wrong. coaching her in front of Carson. <laughs> As, look, Carson's an old dude. Yeah. He's been in service forever. He knows what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, Thomas is like, go on, Daisy, tell him what you saw. And she's like, ha, 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 thank God, my have seen this debate in the, in the pantry of the cellar. What's he still doing? Like, she yeah. has, like, she didn't even tell her what to say beforehand. Uh, right. Right. Anyway, it's ridiculous. In Carson's face, you can just see, he's like, what? This is what you come in to waste my time with? Yeah. He's like, do you know how much time I'm going to have to spend on this just in case there's any truth in anything that's going on? Right. I mean, because he still does have to officially solve the case of the missing wine. Mm -hmm. It's still an open case. Uh, so yes, Carson's not sold. Uh, but then O'Brien is serving McGee her breakfast upstairs in her bedroom. As per usual. As per usual. And O'Brien takes the opportunity to accidentally mention... Oh, I don't like to say, lady. Yeah. Boo. <laughs> yeah. Get uh, a new line, O'Brien. <laughs> and new bangs. But, uh, you know, does a decent job of using her privileged position with McGee to... Badmouth Mr. Bates to bad yet again. Mr. Bates again, yeah. So, uh, well done, O'Brien. Little good may it do you below stairs. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, cut to the library where Lord Grantham appears to spend most of his time. Yeah. At this point in the uh, in the series, I think we can all agree that's where he likes to hang out. Yeah. Sybil comes in and asks him about Branson driving her into Ripon on Friday evening. Her Borstal charity is meeting. Yes. Uh, a Borstal charity being a charity that primarily benefits uh, juvenile delinquents. Yes. For lack of a better word. I think that's probably why they came up with the word Borstal. I guess so. So Lord Grantham insists that if she's going, she has to bring Mary and Edith along. She says that they get bored and he knows what they're like when they're bored. And uh, he wants to know why all of her causes are so steeped in gloom. <laughs> and she adorably says that that's where help is most needed. If everything's sunny in the garden, why meddle? Yeah. Uh, he agrees with her and asks if she's, you know, apropos of nothing, <laughs> asks if she's looking forward to her first season. She says she is, rather. Uh, I'll tell you what I am looking forward to now. What is that? It is a segment from our resident follicle fanatic, Kelly. It's a segment that we like to call Fashion Backwards. All right. We are focusing, as you may have guessed, on hairstyles today. Prior to 1890, women's hairstyles were somewhat austere. 
with their hair pulled straight back to the crown of the head in keeping with the atmosphere created by the agricultural depression, uh, which we discussed Mm-hmm. in uh tom repeats history last episode yeah. and likewise men grew beards and their hair was cut short and shaggy not unlike today's urban hipster in his natural environment <laughs> now in the ni- 1890s things were looking a little bit better mm-hmm. and uh we saw the dawn of big hair which caused women to brush their hair more often in order to collect enough strands to create their own rats and pads to bulk up their hairdos so oh. that they would be taller if that alone failed to produce enough to create a pad, women would resort to purchasing false hair provided by other women looking to make some quick money. Mm-hmm. And retailers often sold hair pieces that were already styled in the latest fashions. Uh, and if I remember my little house on the prairie correctly, in America, these were called switches. Oh. And uh, wigs also rose in popularity for the woman who just couldn't be bothered. Yeah. Uh, and I'm kind of with those women, considering <laughs> the fact that in the 1900s, pompadours became the chic hairstyle. Oh. And the primary reason for the craze was American Charles Gibson's famous Gibson Girl sketches, which is where we get the name of our fashion Abbey Award. Mm-hmm. His sketches featured a stylish young woman. Many would say this was the ideal during the Edwardian period that everybody was kind of looking to be. She was the, you know, the Jennifer Aniston, <laughs> uh, or I guess the Rachel, more accurately. Right. But, you know, she had a very tall, elaborate pompadour. And uh, that was a great use for all the hair that women had been collecting. Uh, so they got to having pompadours all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Gibson also gave the world the Gibson man, who was a broad-shouldered and clean-shaven chap. So the beards of yesteryear were shorn off to keep up with the trend. Now, some mustaches were retained, as we have pointed out in a past episode, because military officers were required to have them. Yeah, yeah. However, that seems like that probably fell off in the 1910s because most young men did not have mustaches. And I think that goes for military men as well. Okay. Although I don't have confirmation. Women toned their hair down so it appeared to be almost ear length, more resembling a short bob than anything else. And we can obviously see that on Mary and Edith. Right, Um, right. I mean, a lot of times I'll be looking at their hair and I'm like, is it short? Like, yeah. Whereas uh, McGee, we can see, she seems to favor the simple straight pullback with some curls framing the face, which is very much a pre-1890s thing. Mm. Violet, though, seems to be sticking with the pompadour, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, hers isn't as elaborate as the Gibson girl sketches are, but it's definitely got the height in there. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very interesting that Violet seems to have a slightly more you know, fashion forward, uh-huh. so to speak, uh-huh. uh, hairstyle that McGee does. But that may also be, you know, the cultural divide and, you know, and the- I don't know what the hairstyles were like prior to, say, the 1860s. <laughs> yeah. So it may just be a retread of everything old is new again. Yeah. And, of course, all the women below stairs, they're just pulling their hair straight back. Uh, apart from O'Brien, not a lot of bangs. Yeah. But, I mean, so O'Brien's clearly kind of sticking with what was going on prior to the 1890s. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's, you know, sort of what we see uh, with the women in the show. And the bob haircut itself was inspired by a woman named Irene Castle. Hmm. She cut her hair off in 1914 prior to a surgery so she wouldn't have to deal with her hair while she recovered. And for a time, this style was dubbed a castle bob in her honor. And uh, the popularity of the bob actually preceded the Roaring Twenties, which I didn't know. I I had always just sort of assumed that it was, you know, with the flappers and everything. And actually, at the end of World War I, there was a return to the Edwardian Pompadour as people attempted to get their lives back to normal in peacetime. Mm -hmm. You know, they reverted to the previous 
you know, trend. Yeah. And uh, that's about it for hairstyles. Okay. As always, we'd like to uh, thank blog mistress extraordinaire Evangeline Holland of Edwardian Promenade for her post on the wonderful world of hair. Yeah. And we'll link to that for any of our cousins who like to do more research on their own. Uh, there is also a tutorial on there on how to do a Lady Mary-inspired hairstyle. Ooh. And uh, just links to other places where you can find out more about the hairstyles of the Edwardian age. All right. All right. So back to the show. Uh, Mary is sitting out on a bench. She is reading a book, and she is wearing a ridiculous hat. I believe it's one of the uh, portrait hats that we talked about when we did hats. Because mm-hmm. it's not a Mary Widow. It's not big enough for that. But holy God, is it giant. Yeah. Well, it's just, I mean, it's like a, like a shaped like a flying saucer. Mm-hmm. Like, I could deal with it being that big if it had, like, more of a dimension to it. Yeah. But it's just... There's no, there's no crown. Yeah. It's just like, whew, Yeah. Just tied... Just tied this frisbee on my head. <laughs> yes, but Matthew looms up over the horizon and is uh, apparently stalking her again. Uh, supposedly, he's just looking for her father uh, because he wants to make an inquiry about the farms. And uh, Mary says he's in the library. However, Carson told Matthew that Lord Grantham was outside, which to me sounds fishy. I think he's making it up. I, th- I think he's manufactured an excuse. Because Carson, number one, wouldn't not know yeah. where Lord Grantham was. Absolutely. And number two, I guess just number one. <laughs> yeah, just, just <laughs> well, he would know and he wouldn't lie about it. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Regardless of what brings him there, he seems to be happy to sit and stay for a little while. Uh, he starts making conversation, asking what's new. Uh, and what's new is, of course, Sybil's interest in politics. It's what everybody's talking about. <laughs> so they discuss that for a little bit. Mary says that she likes politics because she likes a good argument. And then Matthew proposes that if she likes arguments, they should see more of each other. Because they're always arguing. (laughs) (laughs) Like married couples do all the time. Yes. Matthew seems to have pretty much forgiven the end of the last episode. Yeah, that's true. Well, uh, maybe he got drunk. <laughs> Could be. I find that helps me forgive a lot of things. Uh, Lord Grantham. We're back in the library with Lord Grantham and Sybil. Yes. I know you forgot because we're talking about hair, but they're still there. <laughs> he uh, consults with his dog and then, <laughs> then gives Sybil permission to go on Friday and for Branson to take a sandwich. And I'm like, oh, don't worry. Branson will take a sandwich. And then he's going to take the means of production. <laughs> Mrs. Patmore? <laughs> yes. She don't see too good. <laughs> the Dowager Countess hands McGee a letter from her friend Susan Flintshire. Flintshire? I, don't I think know. it's Flintshire. Okay. Who is the wife of the man who has yeah. the valet who sent Carson the letter. <laughs> yes. And this letter also relates the tale of Mary's disgrace. Yes. Which McGee confirms and admits her complicity in. The Dowager Countess is taken aback and very emotional. Here we yeah. see her. She's as upset as Lord Grantham was at dinner. Yeah. Uh, in terms of scale of how right. upset we've seen her. And, you know, she's just... I mean, it's it's the only time we've really seen her kind of thrown off balance. Mm-hmm. Like, Well, because she asks, you know, if it's true. Right. McGee just doesn't say anything. Yeah. McGee is a gangsta <laughs> yeah. in this scene. Yeah. She's awesome. Yeah. I, I, this is a great McGee episode. Yeah, it is. She just sits there and the Dowager Countess asks again, she's like, how much? Doesn't say anything. Yeah. McGee's just silent. She's like, oh dear, all of it? Yeah. And McGee says, she didn't drag him. Yeah. 
<laughs> and goes on to awesomely say that, you know, she's just sitting ramrod straight. Yeah. No, um, you know, because yeah. it was me. and be like, oh, my God, it was so terrible. <laughs> yeah. But she knows that the only way to get through this is the same way she's been getting through it, mm-hmm. which is just like, bite your tongue, just get through this. So yeah. she explains that Mary woke her up, she helped her, and that was pretty much the end of it. And, yeah. and Violet is upset. Yeah. She is so flustered. Yeah. Well, she says that she... she you know, G just explains why she did what she did to an extent, and the Dowager Countess is like, I'm not going to listen to you try and justify uh-huh. yourself. And McGee says that that if you expect me to disown my daughter, you're going to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. Which... She's come a long way from hating Mary and her death vagina, baby. <laughs> it's true. Uh, I have to, I'm very proud of McGee. Yeah. For uh, coming to terms with this, and I mean, if I, you know, had I been in her position, I think she did the best thing that she could do. Yeah. Considering that nobody actually killed anyone, you know, in malice. Right. I think she did the best that she could. I agree. I would also like to point out for the record, Anna helped. Anna did help, but she's not really a person. (laughs) Yes, I know. Speaking of... Anna finds Bates sitting outside in the dark. Uh, they talk about how he, he's like Eeyore. He's like, oh. He is like Eeyore. Got a pin on my leg again. <laughs> Old Thomas is bothering me today. <laughs> like, what? Anyway, they're talking about why he's upset. And, you know, because Thomas is uh, trying to take him down. Yeah. And Bates is such a fucking douche hat. Yeah. Like, he's not even, you know, he's like, oh, I, 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 you know, I can't do anything about. Yes, you can. You can march right into Carson and be like, guess what, Carson? Guess who I saw with a bottle of wine in his hand? Check his room. There's probably still more bottles of wine in it. He's probably sleeping on a giant pile of wine bottles. (laughs) Anyway, Anna says she's going to tell the world of his innocence. Uh, he says he doesn't think the world is listening. Again, correct. Right. Anna's not really a person. <laughs> yeah. Anna tells him that he can't take it lying down. Oh, but he will. He's a cripple. That's right. He's he, really good at that. Yeah, he can't. He really can't take it standing up, not for mm-hmm. very long. Yeah, especially yeah. with O'Brien around. He might kick his cane out again. <laughs> That's right. So, yes, another scene of Bates sucking. Upstairs, Sybil uh, walks in while Gwen is making her bed, uh, Sybil's bed, tells her not to give up. On her on dreams her, of being a secretary. Right. From uh, last episode. Gwen just explains the class system. Right. She's like, no, here's the deal. You were born thinking you could do anything. I was born knowing I would never do anything. So you need to just back off, lady, and accept that, like, <laughs> you're where you're at, and I'm where I'm at, and I'm not going anywhere soon. Yeah. Uh, but Sybil promises to use her upper class magic to make Gwen's dream come true. Yes. So uh, that's that's pretty exciting. That's settled. Yeah. I wonder if she's a gin. <laughs> Time will tell. Then we've got a scene of Thomas and O'Brien scheming in a doorway. It's, as- it's a wonder anybody ever gets from one room to another <laughs> downstairs. They're like, Jesus, you again? <laughs> Could you find a less convenient place to scheme? They're like, well, Anna and Bates are outside crying in the dark. That's where we <laughs> usually do this. <laughs> <laughs> William comes into the kitchen and he asks Daisy for some stale bread to make a hot poultice for Diamond. 
uh, Diamond being the lame horse, yes. in case you forgot. Turns out William had a very happy childhood learning how to care for horses. Daisy did not have a happy childhood. She says there's no one that she can trust. Uh, she wasn't brought up in a in a good environment for uh, trusting anyone. Mm-hmm. So we're we're starting to understand uh, why Daisy is the way she is. Yeah. And uh, William also says that the groom wants him, you know, to come and be a stable boy because he's so good with right. the horses. You know, probably not going to happen because William's mom wants him to be a uh, a butler. Yeah. Also, we uh, haven't met the groom yet on screen, so I we can't... don't know his name. Yeah. I think I've heard it. Could be. Here comes the groom. <laughs> Not that Shit kind of sweeping groom. <laughs> um, all right. Speaking of William's mom. Yes. Speaking of William's mom. Mom. Matthew's mom. Yeah. Cousin Isabel. This is about to get confusing. <laughs> cousin Isabel is walking with McGee and Mary, and she informs them that William's mother is ill and has been at the hospital. Uh, and she has forbidden William to come see her. Despite the fact that it looks very serious and... Uh, right. Well, and specifically has forbidden them to tell William... Yes. ...that she is... that she's even sick. Mm-hmm. So he has no idea that she is there or is feeling bad. Mm-hmm. And Cousin Isabel is, you know... She's in a bit of a moral quandary. Right. Um, and I don't know how clear the doctor-patient confidentiality lines were drawn at this point. Or, or more specifically, the meddling upper-class woman patient confidentiality <laughs> lines. <laughs> anyway, so she wants to know what she should do. McGee agrees that she should honor Mrs. Mason, William's mother's wishes, whereas Mary is just livid and thinks that this is horrible and that he needs to be told immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nothing really gets resolved. They're all wearing white for some reason, <laughs> yeah. which they keep doing. Don't do it. Get a tan. Then you can wear white. I, I'm sorry, Kelly. <sighs> Watch the Jersey Shore. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Sybil uh, arrives in Ripon as uh, being driven by Branson. When she's... And his sandwich. <laughs> yes. Sandwich in tow. Uh, <laughs> When suddenly she leaps out, and it turns out that she's not there for the Borstal Charity <gasps> at all. What? She is there for the uh, official announcement of the vote count. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So, and, and Branson is shocked to find this out. She jumps out, leaving him, and he can't run after her because he's in the middle of the street. He has to park the car. She says a pretty nasty thing to him, too, in this scene, because he's yelling at her. He's like, come back now. And she looks and goes, oh, really, Branson? I thought I gave the orders. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, being a bitch is a fine ambition, Sybil. (laughs) Yeah, but you should really leave it to Mary. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Sir Antony comes by again and uh, assures McGee when he comes into the drawing room that he hasn't got the date wrong. They're all clearly, they're, they all, like, jump up when he arrives. Yeah, and they're all flaked out. Yeah. Because uh, they're concerned that maybe he thought he was invited for dinner or, mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. But he said that he just happened to be in the neighborhood, and he dropped by to, yeah. he, he's got tickets to a concert. And Mary immediately jumps in <laughs> and says, oh, I can't go. And he's like, oh, no, I thought I would invite Lady Edith. And so Edith is like, oh, yes, of course. Lord Grantham is like, aren't you even going to find out what it is? And I'm like, does she need an excuse? Look at her face. Yeah. How many concert invitations do you think <laughs> she's going to get? Yes. And there, and I do actually, I have a question here for our cousins or anybody in the world. Because Antony says that, oh, just Hungry Hundred stuff. 
Puccini, something else, da da da. It's Puccini, Rossini, somebody else that rhymes with those. Right. And I would love anybody who could tell me what Hungry Hundreds means. Well, because because you looked it up. I looked it up on the internet as much as I could, and the only reference I found to it related in this sort of context was in what appeared to be a book written by Julian Fellows and printed on the internet on some Russian website. <laughs> so I'm just at a loss as to what Hungry Hundreds means, and I would, I would really like to know. I just want an excuse to say, hey, Julian Fellows, quit trying to make Hungry Hundreds happen. It's never going <laughs> to happen. Yeah. I, I like the idea that he just tried to invent some Edwardian slang and is going to... Yeah, like, like a hundred so years late. <laughs> right. And so that 500 years from now, everybody will think that they were all saying hungry hundreds in the Edwardian era. And he'll dance a jig in his grave. <laughs> Down in the kitchen, Daisy is helping Mrs. Patmore. Daisy's having a little bit of a talk aloud to herself. Yeah. Because after her conversation with William about trusting people and, and being a good person... She uh, she's realized that maybe she shouldn't have finked on Mr. Bates like she did. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mrs. Patmore sort of wants to know why she's so down. And Daisy says, I feel I've let myself down. And uh, she has. But she's yeah. she seems to finally, six episodes in, be developing some self-awareness. Yeah, which is, uh, which is nice to which see. Which is probably painful. But it's, it's a good step forward for Daisy. Yeah. And a quick little aside. Just, uh, she asks what's to be done with some food that's there. And Mrs. Patmore says, well, we're not going to leave it out for the fairies. Which I just thought was a nice little note because back... You know, going back centuries, that's like a really old English-like superstition that you would leave, I think, usually milk out for the fairies to keep them from killing you or whatever it is the fairies would do. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. But like, you know, like Puck back in the day. Oh, yeah, that's a scary fairy. Yeah, exactly. So back at the vote count, the votes are being announced, and it is quite rowdy. Much rowdier than that first scene, what with the aggressive jostling. Yeah. I think we've graduated up to shoving. Yes. Officially, there's some shoving happening. Yeah. And uh, Branson runs into the crowd to try to get Sybil out of there. Mm -hmm. And she's not having it. She wants to stay. She's like, it's so exciting. And he's like, look, a riot is going to break out right now. Yeah. And you need to not be here. Yeah. And, uh, he's right. We see, pulling up to the rally, a truck full of goons. Mm-hmm. Hyatt goons. <laughs> that's that's right. Um, we're clearly there for no other reason than to start shit. Mm-hmm. Um, a riot, specifically. <laughs> right. Like, they didn't just go and be like, hey, go kick someone. <laughs> no, they, they need to, you know. Yeah. It's not clear to me what this is accomplishing exactly, but somebody felt it was a good idea for there to be a riot, and it's happening. Matthew just happens to be walking by and sees them, and it's not... Does How does... It's a little bit of a deus ex machina, yeah, I think, somehow... because instead of seeing the hired goons and saying, hmm, I'm going to walk in the opposite direction <laughs> right. from the hired goons, because that, yeah. to me, is what I would do. Yeah. Uh, but maybe he like left his bike near the crowd. Let's say that's what it is. He that left sounds, his, he yeah. left his old bike there. Yeah. So he walks into the crowd and miraculously sees Sybil. Also, O'Brien's weird looking sister also still there. <laughs> yeah. So he sees Sybil and uh, he joins Branson in exhorting her to leave. Uh, and Branson foolishly engages with one of the goons. Right. Because he says, 
listen, I'm on your side, but you don't want to start any trouble. And the guy's probably like, listen, I don't get my 5P yeah. if I don't he's bust like, some skulls. Yeah. He's like, I'm not here on a side. I'm here to make some money so I can get drunk. Yeah. What? <laughs> You're Irish? What part of this do you not understand? <laughs> anyway, uh, so he fails to deter this gentleman and... Uh, then somebody sees Matthew and says, Oi, what do you want, Mr. La-dee-da? Which is pretty great. Yeah. Because that's exactly what he looks like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Branson looks like a tool, but he didn't choose his outfit. <laughs> he did not choose his stupid, like, doorman to the land of Oz jacket. <laughs> yes. So a dude throws a punch at Matthew who's pretty nimble. Yeah. He evades it and then punches the guy back, yeah. knocking the guy over, but unfortunately also knocking Sybil into a board head first. Yeah. With some bottles on it. Some not bottles. Sure what, I don't sure think the bottles about. really did anything, but... Fair enough. Uh, anyway, Probably is, uh, the Foley artist was bored, so... <laughs> yeah. She is, she is down on the ground, out for the count. And uh, bleeding, yes. as Matthew discovers. So... Matthew and Branson pick her up and carry her off. And I'm like, haven't you ever heard not to move someone with a head injury? I, uh, I don't think they have heard that. Well, and I guess, like, I guess you have to do kind of a quick triage. Like, what's worse? Yeah. Getting trampled to death in a riot <laughs> or a possible concussion? Yeah. Neck yeah. injury? So, back at Downton Abbey, uh, Branson comes in to fetch Mary and tells her that they took Sybil to Crawley House, which, again... Crawley House is is where Matthew and mom are staying. Uh And I just sort of wondered, again, I'm never clear where that house originated. Was it always named Crawley house? Has it always been like in their family? I don't know. I mean, it's not clear. This is one of the secrets of Manor House that I wish had been more uh, thoroughly dealt with. Yeah. I mean, it would make sense though, because I mean, like everything in the, in the village is named after them. Like the hotel is the Grantham arms. Yeah, that's true. And you know, if Crawley house has been in the family, yeah. And the Crawley name might not be anywhere else. Yeah. Any case, that's where Sybil is. <laughs> and uh, so Mary runs into Crawley House and finds Matthew and Mom tending to Sybil. Everyone wants to fire Branson, or at least is accepting as a foregone conclusion the fact that Branson is clearly going to be fired. Right. But Sybil, who is now conscious, yeah. uh, she is protesting vociferously. And uh, Matthew asks if she's ready to go back up to the big house. And Sybil says, yes, if you take me. And she's looking at him very dreamily. Yeah. Which I think we're supposed to think she's got a crush on him or something. Right. But it's obviously a concussion. <laughs> yeah. Like, give me a concussion. I'll be infatuated with Steve Buscemi. Okay? <laughs> like, that's how concussions work. I'm infatuated with him already. <laughs> so Matthew starts the long slog to get Sybil back up to the house. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mary asks mom about uh, William's mother, Mrs. Mason. Mom is still insisting that William can't be told due to his mother's wishes. So right. she has managed to draw the line at her uh, older, upper-class woman meddling. <laughs> yes. Well, she says that William's mother insists that he can't be bothered as if he's, like, a cabinet minister or mm-hmm. something, which I sort of like the image of that, you know, Minister William. <laughs> <laughs> well, he'd be just, like, empty-eyed and I don't have anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He'd be better than a Republican, am I right? (laughs) Election year. (laughs) I have a feeling we're going to get some stars knocked off for that. Up Yours Downstairs does not endorse any electoral candidates. Because we're socialists. (laughs) Yeah. Carson is locking up up at 
the house, uh, Mrs. Hughes wants to know what's troubling him. Because, again, she knows him. She knows that something's mm-hmm. up. Uh, he Car- forgot to bring the dressing gong! He, he did. And Carson uh, insists that it is not the wine situation. Uh, and is starting to blab a little bit about the letter that he received. Without really, like... Naming like it's very confusing for Mrs. Hughes because he's like, how can anyone say you know it's terrible to read things about the people you love, and you know. Mrs. Hughes is like, uh, uh me. Yeah, uh, and she's like, like, well, and even if he did tell her about Mary, she'd be like, once again, you know they're not your family, right? <laughs> you don't have to be taking all this on yourself. Yeah. But then Daisy pops her head in, and Mrs. Hughes is like, what are you doing interrupting us? Mr. Carson's about to cry. This never happens. But uh, she tells Mr. Carson that she lied to him. Yeah. So she's coming clean. Yeah. Congratulations, Daisy. Way to go. We're very proud of you. Outside, uh, Mary is talking to Branson and telling him that he had better nut up. Because uh, mm-hmm. Lord Grantham is going to hit the roof. Yeah, I mean, he like think about how mad he was at dinner, right? When she just went canvassing. Yeah, when nothing had actually happened, mm-hmm. and of course, I mean, Branson's no fool. I'm sure he was well aware that he was not in for a pleasant. He got his brass knuckles out. <laughs> yeah. So yes, we cut to Lord Grantham screaming at the still obviously concussed Sybil. Yes. Matthew can hear them fighting from downstairs. That's a very funny edit. Yeah. It's just yeah. like you can hear Lord Grantham yelling and then you cut down to Matthew and it's like the same volume. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Lord Grantham uh, is screaming that he's going to he's gonna fire Branson. It's all Branson's fault. They never had these problems before he came to the house. Yeah. Which I doubt. <laughs> right. But Sybil then in her dazed state stands up and says that if he dismisses Branson, she's going to run away. Yeah. And he's <laughs> like, what? Where would you go? And she's like, I can't think right now. <laughs> But I will. Like, <laughs> yeah. She's just like, she doesn't even try to bluff. But right. uh, she's like, ah, oh, I can't think because I'm seeing double. <laughs> yeah. Which, again, she's 16, right? I think Is about, that? I think that's about when you enter society. Right. Because she doesn't, she doesn't look 16 at all. Oh, no. She looks so like she's 22. It's hard. Because so when she says something like threatening to run away... I'm like, right, because she's actually still yeah. young. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Mary sticks up for Branson and says that, you know, he didn't know. Right. Sybil backs this up that, you know, he had nothing to do with it. She lied, you know, to blame her. And Lord Grant was like, I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah. And McGee intervenes and says Sybil needs to rest. Can we do this in the morning? Mm-hmm. Great advice. McGee. Yeah. She's coming out with the win on this episode. She is. So then Mary and Lord Grantham come downstairs to the fireplace where Matthew has been waiting and uh, unwillingly eavesdropping on <laughs> yeah. the proceedings upstairs. And Lord Grantham is just like going off about Branson's politics. You should see what he reads. It's all Bruskin and Marx and blah, 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 blah. And, and John Stuart Mill, first suffragist, as we uh-huh. may remember. And uh, Matthew and Mary are like, yeah, duh. Have you like <laughs> talked to the guy? Like, what? Right. What is wrong with you? <laughs> But Mrs. Hughes comes in and diffuses the awkwardness by announcing that there are sandwiches for Matthew in the other room. And uh, Lord Grantham says for Mary to go in and see to Matthew. And he's going upstairs to revive McGee. And I'm like, is that what they're calling it nowadays? Like, what do you... She seemed fine. Sybil was the one with a concussion. So, anyway, he's he's obviously... He's had a hard day. He needs... He needs to do a little reviving. <laughs> well, he's obviously playing his long, subtle con of forcing Mary and Matthew to hang out without him all the time. Right. right. Which I have to say to 
Julian Fellows' credit, it's really cool that Lord Grantham never plays his hand. You know, he never tells anybody that's what he's doing. Right. Despite that it's obvious. And he's obviously said on multiple occasions he wants Mary to marry Matthew. Yeah. But, you know, he's He's not... He's a very capable schemer. Yeah. You know, and he's not ostentatious about it, which I appreciate. Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, Carson is getting to the bottom of the long-running case of the missing wine. He's assembled everybody in a room. Then the lights go out. (laughs) Yeah. And Thomas sucks. He's like, oh, now maybe I don't think I saw that anymore. Which, why would you say that? Why do you not think these things through? Because then, because... When he, when Carson asks O'Brien, who had previously said that she saw him with a bottle of wine, she's like, no, I don't think I'm mistaken. I stand by that I saw him. Because yeah. she's a much better schemer than Thomas. Well, right. Thomas was hedging his bets from the beginning. He was like, oh, maybe. Right. The with the key was swinging. Swing. Yeah. I know about swing keys. <laughs> but uh, then, you know, Carson disses Daisy and is like, and we all know how much your testimony is worth. Right. But she's like, yeah, you know, yeah. she's like, I deserve that. Fair play. And, uh, okay, also, Mrs. Hughes and Anna are there, like, to act as witnesses. Right. It's why they're there is not entirely. Uh, narrative economy. Yeah. Anyway, so they're there, and Bates basically says, since he came to Downton, Mr. Carson has not seen him drink one drop of alcohol. Right. And then Carson is like, yeah, how did you know the wine was missing again? And then Bates is like, oh, I'd rather not say. Refusing to throw Thomas under the bus because he's here in front of you. Right. Being questioned for saying that you did something wrong that he actually did and you know that he did. Yeah. And everybody trusts you. Right. Like, you decided not to turn him in, in repayment of which he turned you in for that crime. Mm -hmm. Like, what does he have to do? (sighs) Anyway. Forgive them, Lord. (laughs) I know not what I do. (laughs) But back upstairs, Mary and Matthew are having some sandwiches. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're, uh, you know, they're... They're they're a little... Reviving themselves. <laughs> they are. Uh, she makes a comment about him not being fastidious. Well, because he, he wants to drink a toast to Sybil's health. Mm. And uh, there's only one wine glass. So Mary says she will ring for another glass. And he's like, what is wrong with you? So he just pours a glass and then he pours another glass, but in a tumbler. Mm. She's like, what? Oh, you don't care about how things are done. And he's like, no, bitch. Well, he says he's not as fastidious as you She's like, oh, I'm not so fastidious that I can't kill a Turk with my vagina. <laughs> and they talk about politics a little bit. And mm-hmm. uh, Matthew asks, you know, if she wants the vote. And uh, she says, you know, kind of like whatever. But she doesn't really feel like it matters that much uh, in a by-election with a hung parliament. Indeed. And here to tell us a little bit more about politics and hung parliaments in general is our resident fact expert, <laughs> Tom, with a segment called Tom Repeats History. Okay. Uh, So yeah, I'm just talking a little bit about parliament and parliamentary elections. A quick discussion of the parliamentary system, which to our non-American listeners will be boring because that's pretty much everywhere except America runs this way. Uh, Basically, you're probably aware that they have a prime minister, not a president, uh, but it's not just a difference in title. The difference is that a prime minister is is elected by parliament or congress or Mm -hmm. whatever the name of the elective body is so it is never possible in a parliamentary system for the prime minister 
to be of a different party than the parliament hmm. because it's you don't elect the prime minister directly. You elect members of parliament, and then whoever has the majority gets to name the prime minister and all the other ministers. They get to form the government. Wow, that seems like you'd probably get a lot more done that way. It does seem that way, doesn't it? I could go on about that. Um, we do not at Up Yours Downstairs endorse any particular form of government. <laughs> well, I do. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, at this point, this is actually, and, and this is all, of course, the House of Commons specifically that we're talking about. The House of Lords was not elective. It was the Lords. But at this point, as of uh, 1911, the House of Lords had finally kind of been kneecapped, basically. Uh, the, the Parliament Act of 1911. They got baited. <laughs> yes, uh, made it so that they could no longer veto bills passed by the House of Commons. It was actually a compromise. They could veto bills by the House of Commons for two years in a row. After that, if the House of Commons passed it in a third year, then it would just skip the House of Lords and just become, well, after the royal assent, which is a formality, it would become law. So it meant that the House of Lords could no longer block legislation if they wanted to. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so in the House of Commons, uh, for most of its history, it had been pretty reliably a two-party system. Either the Whigs and Tories or in the mid-1800s, they got renamed to the Liberals and the Conservatives, respectively. One or the other of them always got a majority of seats and thus formed the government and, and named all the ministers and passed all the laws. However, in the election of 1910, there was, as they said, a hung parliament. And a hung parliament is one where no single party has a majority of the seats in the parliament. Uh, and this had started happening around the turn of the century, a little before, because a third party had come into the mix, which was the Irish Parliamentary Party, which was basically more or less a single-issue party. They just wanted home rule for Ireland. That was all they cared about. Mm -hmm. uh, and they would join with whatever other party was willing to endorse home rule. The Labour Party had started to come onto the scene at this point, but partly due to the fact that the, the way the districts were divided was still fairly undemocratic, uh, they didn't have many seats. In that election, for example, they had gotten 7.6% of the vote, uh, but only got 40 seats, whereas the Irish Parliamentary Party, with 1.2% of the vote, got 74 seats. Mm -hmm. So the Labour Party was still a ways off from being a force. It was basically a three-party system. And Lloyd George wound up being in the Labour Party, correct? No. No? I think I might have said that earlier and incorrectly. Okay. He was a Liberal. Okay, uh, good to know. Yeah. Uh, and so at this point, he was the Prime Minister because the Liberal Party uh, had formed a coalition government with the Irish Parliamentary Party. Mm-hmm. So that's that's sort of what was going on there. And this was also why they had finally gotten the incentive together to take away the House of Lords' power, because they had been consistently vetoing any attempt to give Ireland any independence. Mm -hmm. uh, and so after the 1910 election, the Irish Parliamentary Party agreed to join the coalition with the Liberals, thus enabling them to be in charge, mm -hmm. provided that they would pass this law to reform the House of Lords so that they could then mm -hmm. pass a law for Irish home rule. That wound up getting suspended by World War I and being a problem throughout the 20th century, right. as we were probably aware. Thank you, Bono. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, so that, that was pretty much the political situation at the time. And that was the only general election from 1910 to 1918. There were no general elections. Mm-hmm. So in this period, that's why what we're seeing is a by-election. Okay. A by-election is what we call in America a special election. And it's just when a member of parliament either dies or resigns or for some other reason leaves parliament and they need to fill his spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, one little interesting thing about that is that, in fact, members of parliament are not allowed to resign. And this is because centuries ago it was sometimes a financial hardship for people to serve in parliament and they would just not want to do it and so it was made a rule that if you got elected you were required to serve and not allowed to resign but of course you know that wouldn't really work people need to resign uh so what they've in disgrace sometimes yes absolutely and so what they do in britain which i find kind of hilarious is that if a member of parliament resigns, they don't officially resign, what happens is the king or queen appoints them to be either steward of the Chiltern Hundreds or steward of the Manor of Northstead, uh, which are two things that used to be posts that the crown could appoint people to. And then because they're appointed to an office under the crown, they're no longer eligible to be in parliament. <laughs> and so they're, that's, their seat is vacated. Um, and that's just a funny tradition that they have. Jerry Adams, I believe this is in the 90s, he's the head of, I do, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, Sinn Féin, which was the mm-hmm. party that the IRA was associated with. He actually resigned Parliament. Uh, it was then announced that he had been appointed to be the steward of the Manor of Northstead, and he went out and was like, no, I, ref- I did not accept the stewardship <laughs> of the Manor of Northstead, I just resigned. And they all eventually agreed that he had been appointed to it, whether or not he had actually accepted it. I see. Because God forbid that they change a law from the 1600s. It's fine. (laughs) Yes, everything's clearly working fine. And uh, one other note that I wanted to say real quick is that in my research, I did find that the phrase hung parliament was not widely used in the UK until 1974. (gasps) Party foul fellows. That is correct. He would get really mad at you for pointing that out. (laughs) I hope he does. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if only Julian Fellows listened to this podcast, it would be shut down immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for repeating history. You're welcome. I will admit I zoned out for parts of that. (laughs) Fair enough. That had lots of numbers in it. (laughs) All right, so uh, we're back in front of Carson with uh, Mrs. Hughes and Anna. Thomas, Daisy, and O'Brien have left. Yes. And Mr. Bates also stays behind and throws himself under the bus. Apparently now all of a sudden he's all about revealing dark secrets. Yeah, for no reason. In front of Carson, he tells Carson and Mrs. Hughes and Anna he was imprisoned as a thief and he used to be a drunk. And this is relevant how? Right. Well, he says that he doesn't think his lordship will want a thief. Well, he didn't think his lordship wanted a cripple either. (laughs) He kept that Irish chauffeur. And also, if you don't think his lordship wants a thief in the house, maybe you should turn in Thomas, who you know is the current active thief. (sighs) He's the thiefiest. (laughs) Anyway, Carson agrees with us. And tells Bates that he should stay at his post until he, Carson, discusses the situation with his lordship and his lordship comes to a decision. Yeah. I'm sure Bates will do something idiotic before that happens, but whatever. Yeah. I'm over it, Bates. (laughs) I've had it with you. Agreed. Mary and Matthew are still uh, nibbling at sandwiches and she is 
all, ooh, you're so strong, Matthew, <laughs> because, like, he punched a guy and uh, kind of helped Sybil. Matthew tries to play play it off, and he says, oh, I'm just doing my duty. Mm-hmm. And so Mary wants to know if he likes her because of duty or because he really likes her. And uh, he tells her to stop being a bitch. Yeah. Which, finally. Uh, yeah. Uh, because, you know, don't he says, don't play with me. I don't deserve it. Right. And uh, Mary hint that Sybil has a crush on Matthew, which, hello, it's a concussion. <laughs> In the morning, she'll be fine. They, uh, they may not know what a concussion is. <sighs> anyway, he says, no one could ever accuse you of having a crush on me. And then he basically calls her out. And he's like, do you remember all the horrible things that you said to me? And she's like, oh, well, you have to remember what I told you. Never listen to anything I say. Which, okay, so which is the thing he should listen to? Right. And, like, do you want people to believe you when you talk or not? Because you change your story on this every episode. You might sometimes, like, what if you need medical care? (laughs) I mean, somebody needs to know it's okay to listen to you. Anyway, he does not parse this as we did. (laughs) Uh, And instead, uh, they make out finally, finally achieving uh, first base, which, to be fair, by Edwardian standards, is basically a home run. Yes. He hits her for six, I think, would be the cricket term. (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) Hey, cricket's weird. I don't know what to tell you. Um, So Anna and Bates are out in their uh, dark area. (laughs) (laughs) Their courtyard of sorrow. (laughs) Right. She wants to know if he's going to leave. And, oh, actually, I apologize. This is where he says that his lordship may not want a thief in the house. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, again, are you sure? I mean, he already has one. Yeah. Moreover, like... Yeah. Uh, Bates case. clearly did not put use of his time into reading a Logic 101 book. <laughs> right. But, whatever. Uh, she is sad about the potential of him leaving, and uh, they almost kiss. But then, uh, there's a noise. Yeah, I think a fairy knocks some bottles over. and <laughs> They get spooked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, McGee is in bed, and Mary comes in. Uh, McGee hopes that Mary thanked Matthew properly. Wink. <laughs> um, she hopes he's much revived. <laughs> um, and Mary tells McGee that Matthew has proposed. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Here, wow. Here. Okay. One kiss, and he's like, "Marry me." I think Matthew has low self-esteem. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. But yeah, and McGee plays it well, I think. Well, she thinks that it's a joke. Oh, well, right. First she thinks Proving it's a joke. Proving that McGee does not know how to tell or receive a joke. <laughs> yes. She does not understand humor. But once she gets past that, she keeps herself pretty restrained. But you can see that on the inside, she's, uh, she's, she's just doing a big old victory dance. Yeah. Uh, she wants to know if how Mary responded. And uh, Mary just said that she said that she would have to think about it. And uh, McGee is like, do you love him? He's like, remember, you've got that ticking time bomb. You know, the vagina of death. (laughs) Like, let's chop, chop. Let's go. Right. She says that she does. She thinks she may have loved him for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's all very touching. Yeah, it is. And McGee is like, I'm not going to try and tell you that this isn't the answer to all of our prayers. Uh She's... She's ready to start really celebrating here. Yeah. And then Mary says that she will have to tell Matthew 
about the vagina of death. And McGee's face falls. Yeah. Like a souffle of old. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's just, ah, uh, she's like, do you know how much scheming I have been doing <laughs> on your behalf day in and day out? Yeah. To keep this story from ever reaching the ears of anybody that might want to marry you? Yeah. Mary, though, is very concerned with, like, honesty. She's like, oh, I'll feel that I've caught him with a lie. Like, I don't... Like, has he ever seen you with your hair down? I mean, moreover, you told him never to listen to anything that you say. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So when you say that, is he going to believe you? It's <laughs> a good point. <laughs> that could be the thing that saves them. Mm-hmm. That's uh, her, her loophole. <laughs> yeah. At this point, Lord Grantham barges in to his own room. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And Mary says, I hope you know that really smart people sleep in separate rooms. <laughs> and Lord Grantham says that he always keeps the other room made up just so he can pretend that he sleeps in there. Yeah. Uh, that's very cute, yeah. I think. I don't no. generally like Lord Grantham. He doesn't really turn my crank, as yeah. the kids say. No, but it's a, a nice little family moment. No, there. yeah. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's you know, you know, for the kids. <laughs> Mrs. Patmore goes up to bed from the kitchen, leaving O'Brien and Thomas to scheme by candlelight. It's the most romantic scheming of all. Indeed. (laughs) And, you know, they're just, again, resolved to get Bates fired. And again... I just, they need group therapy. They just uh, yeah. need somebody to send them all down and be like, do you understand how very much at cross purposes? Like, right. look at this guy. Look at him. He's like a sack of potatoes for how much he's going to give you any trouble. And you two are running around like two coked up jackrabbits <laughs> trying to get him fired for no reason. Yeah. Brilliant. Try yet another evil scheme. Hey. That, that surely hey. won't backfire on you. Hey, do you suppose they'll accuse him of stealing something? I, You know, I think they might. I'm beginning to think that the character of Wile E. Coyote was based on Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> but Mr. Bates can't be the roadrunner, Tom. <laughs> he can't go that fast. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> More of a road limper. <laughs> Mary finds William with Diamond, uh, having, you know, applied the poultice and whatnot. And Mary, independent modern woman that she is, tells William that he ought to go home and visit his mother because uh, she is ill. Although, I mean, to be fair, she does have a cover story and she's just like, oh, I heard in the village mm-hmm. somebody talking about it, you know, so that... Well, did she say, has his mother been sent home? I'm not sure. It may have been covered in the scene with Cousin Isabel, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure. Um, Anyway, but, you know, she's very nice because he's saying, you know, oh, he doesn't have another day until July when the family is in London to get home. Right. Um, So Mary tells him, you know, go home now and she'll fix it so that he can go, which is, you know, a nice way of making up for being uh, patronizing earlier. Yeah. And uh, that's that scene. Yeah. Ties up that arc very nicely. Yes. We cut to McGee reading a letter in her uh, own personal drawing room. When the Dowager Countess enters, she announces that she comes in peace. Yes. And uh, she apologizes to McGee for the way she reacted Mm -hmm. to the news about Mary and the death vagina. Yeah. And she tells her that uh, McGee was right. It is every wife's dream to have their (laughs) mother-in-law waltz in and announce unequivocally that she was right. Yeah. So, you know, basically, the Dowager Countess is very nice about it. And she says, I don't think I would have had the strength, mentally or physically, mm-hmm. to carry a corpse the length of that house. 
Because, and she says in the previous scene about how far it is from the girls' rooms to the bachelor's corridor. There's a bachelor's corridor. Right. But she says she hopes she would have. Uh-huh. And, and you know, and she has clearly come around to our way of thinking in that she was just being the best mom she could be. Yep. And looking out for her child's welfare. Yep. And the Dowager Countess is doing damage control. She's written to her friend and said, oh, you know, she said that it was a rumor started by Mr. Pamuk's enemies to discredit him. Right. So that way her friend won't be spreading it anymore because she doesn't want it to look like she's aiding yeah. the enemies of this dead Turk. Yes. And then uh, <laughs> McGee tells the Dowager Countess that Matthew has finally proposed to Mary and uh, they discuss how to solve a problem like Mary <laughs> if she does not accept Matthew because McGee has told the Dowager Countess who's commiserating with her like why would she want to tell him right. the whole point of carrying that dead body <laughs> yeah. was to not have to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the Dowager Countess just says that if Mary hasn't made up her mind by the fall, they're just going to take her to Italy <laughs> because usually in these situations you can find an Italian who's not too picky. <laughs> and that is the episode. Yep. As I said, one of our favorite episodes, Absolute if not our straight. absolute favorite. Yep. Really top-notch stuff. And uh, if you haven't seen the uh, the full version, we recommend it because the, the scenes of Mary and William are really nice. That's right. Head out to Netflix. Now it is time for the Abbey Awards. Hooray. Today we actually have a Gibson Guy Award. Ooh. Or I suppose Gibson Man yeah. is the technical term. But I like Gibson Guy. Yeah. It is for Carson. An upset. It is an upset. Well, look, I believe he wears the same outfit every day. Right. But Carson was dealing with the emotional baggage of both a crazy convoluted scheme <laughs> right. and the fact that his beloved Mary was being slandered uh, hither and yon. Yeah. And uh, he just, you know, despite having forgotten to ring the dressing gong, he looked great. <laughs> Always clean shaven. He's yep. got a natty little haircut. Yeah. So, you know, well done, Carson. Yeah. Give him a little credit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He is a credit to this house. <laughs> And our best evasion this week goes to PBS for completely editing out the plot line about William's dying mother. Yeah. Except at the end, when Mary tells him to go see his mother, Mm -hmm. that's in there, despite the fact that the whole... Anyway. (laughs) Best overbite this episode goes to an overbite we've been overlooking. (laughs) Cousin Isabel. Oh. She's got the pluckiest little overbite you ever did see. (laughs) That's right. It's Uh, been... It's very much on display in the scene where she's nursing Sybil back to health. It's, yeah, it's been in there doing its best mm-hmm. all, all season It doesn't long. call attention to itself, you know? So, well done. And uh, now, time for the big one. That's right. The Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths. This week, I'm going to say a four. Yeah, I'm th- I think that's right. We've, re- we've come a long way since last week's uh, two. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, she, mean, she, doesn't, she doesn't have a lot... Of scenes, in she's this, yeah, in she's this not episode. the focus, and but, uh, but we do get to see. I mean, we see her emotional, which uh-huh. we've never seen before. That was good to see, absolutely, a different side. And then that line about the Italians, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, the line about the Italians and the line of the first scene about uh-huh. taking in washing, mm-hmm. both. Yeah, so she's uh, she's definitely uh, moving back up the scale, and you know. We're almost to the finale. That's right. So here's hoping she's going to really bust out the big uh, Maggie Smith guns. Fingers crossed. Absolutely. So yeah, so we will be back next week with our recap of uh, Downton Abbey Series 1, Episode 7, the final episode. Dun, dun, dun. And so until then, 
up, up yours downstairs. downstairs.